Good morning. Today's scripture is 2 Corinthians 3, verses 12 through 18. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, when they read the Old Covenant, excuse me, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Good morning and Happy New Year, everybody. So my name is Cole Fakes. I'm the pastor and one of the elders here at our church. And uh, whether you're a visitor here or this is your church home, I feel like sometimes we don't do a good enough job of talking about who our leaders are here at the church. And so we are an uh, elder-led church, and you guys have met Kerwin Dees, who has been the chairman of our elders for the last two years and um, has led us so well during that time. We've also got Chuck May here in the back, who's one of our elders at the church, we have J.D. Fuller, who's not here this morning, Kirk and Grant Humphreys as well. And then we have two couples that are serving as deacons of our church right now. We've got Caleb and Crystal Connor. Caleb's up there. And Crystal's right here. And then Bert and Heather Scott, who are down here, and Heather, who read for us this morning. And so sometimes it's good to know who our leaders are. We're going to talk this morning about some things that our leaders have been working on in our church. And so I want you to know who those faces are. Well, it's always good to start something new with worship. And this morning, we're starting the new year. It's just so cool that Christmas and New Year's fell on a Sunday this year, because we get to start the new year. If you're like us, we didn't do much before we came to church this morning, because we were up late last night. This is the first thing of the new year for us, is worshiping together with our church family. And God actually ordained a pattern of starting new things with worship and devotion in Scripture. You think about the creation of the world, God creates for six days, and once everything is finally ready, what does God do? He rests. And of course, God, we wouldn't say necessarily worships, but he ordained a day of worship and a day of rest at the first day of the week for us because Christ was raised on that day for all eternity. And we were telling our kids in Borough Bible Study, which we have on Tuesday afternoons, we were telling them the story of Noah. And one of the things that people miss about the story of Noah is after the flood, after the archy-archy and the animals and all that, they get all the time. Do you remember what Noah does on the new earth? The earth has been cleansed. Nothing has been done on the new earth. And Noah and his family come out, and they build an altar to the Lord, and they begin to worship him. Isn't that a cool thought that the first thing on this earth was worship? And we, of course, away today when there will be a new heavens and a new earth, and we will worship God together forever on that new heavens and new earth. In fact, nothing will happen there other than the praise and glory of God. And this New Year's morning, we point forward and we celebrate a day when we won't just worship at the beginning, we'll worship all the way through. But of course, that's the problem with starting things really strong. 
it's really hard to continue and finish things. Right? New Year's is always a time of New Year's resolutions, New Year's change. We're going to do something different this year. We're going to start something. If you ever had a gym membership and you go to the gym in January, you realize it is easy to start well. And then about September, October, November, it's very difficult to finish well. In fact, most people don't make it to September, October, November. I, sh- I shared some of this with, with some of you last year. I just think this is fascinating, so I'm going to share it again. There was a study of New Year's resolutions done a few years ago, and the top two New Year's resolutions haven't changed in like 60 years. The top resolution is to eat better, and the second resolution is to exercise. Right? These are very physical tangible goals. I want to get in better shape. I want to be a better me in the new year. So I'm going to eat better and I'm going to go to the gym. So some social scientists decided, okay, we're going to see how people do with that. And using check-in data and uh, GPS data that people make available through their phones, that's terrifying, but that's a story for another time. They tracked how often people were going to the gym and how often people were going to fast food restaurants. And in January, it starts out like this, and people are just killing it, going to the gym, Planet Fitnesses are full, McDonald's drive throughs are empty, and as you go through January, they start to go like this. And they came up with what they call the fall off the wagon day, which is a day in March where the number of times that we as Americans go to the gym is surpassed by the number of times we as Americans eat junk food. And it's about 70 days into the new year, (laughs) fall off the wagon day. All God's fast food executives said, amen. (laughs) Transformation is the goal, but transformation is a matter of trade-offs. Here's the bottom line. If you want to be transformed, you can't just say new year, new you, because you're the same you. You've got to make different trade-offs if you want to be transformed. You've got to trade certain decisions about your health or your diet or your routine or your body or your goals for others that are going to be very appealing if you want to be transformed. And we shouldn't think that your spiritual life is any different. If you want to be transformed in your spiritual life, you're going to have to make different trade-offs this year than you did last year. Or for some of us, and I wonder why there isn't more of this, you actually had a great 2022. You just need to keep making the same trade-offs that you made last year in the new year. So I want to talk this morning from our passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 about trade-offs. What trade-offs are we called to make to grow, to be transformed as Christians? The first one is some of us need to trade for being around growing people for being a growing person. See, there's no substitute for your own growth. There's, there's no such thing as growth in the Christian life through osmosis, right? You can't just be around a bunch of Christian people and all of a sudden find yourself one day serving God and loving him and tuned into what he's doing and listening to his spirit. You actually have to become a follower of Christ. Another way to put this, if you're a young person in here, God doesn't have any grandkids. He only has kids. You have to have your own faith, Your parents' faith is helpful, it's a blessing, it's something that God has given you to stir up and and build you into maturity, but it's not a substitute for your own faith. In fact, one of the easiest things in the world to do is to be around something, 
but not really be in that thing. It's, Eugene Peterson tells a story of his grandson, Hans, and he's the youngest of all the grandkids. And his wife was taking Hans out for a picnic in the park uh, one afternoon, and they get out their picnic and their spread, and they get out the food, and Hans reaches into his backpack and pulls out a Bible. And he says, Grandma, before we start, I want to I do a little Bible reading. And so before they start to eat, he opens up his Bible and scans the page for a few seconds and then closes it and puts it in his backpack. And he said, this is totally normal except for the fact that Hans can't read. He's only three. But he's watched his siblings read. And he's watched his parents read. And he's been at church where people read their Bibles. He knows that you should read your Bible. But he can't actually read. So instead, he just goes through the motions. And he's in the right place at the right time with the right thing, but there's a disconnect there. And most of us probably have had that feeling. We can physically read, we can physically pray, we can physically worship, but it just seems like maybe we're not getting what everybody else is getting out of it. And I think one of the easiest things to do in our spiritual lives is to do Christian things without ever really connecting with Christ. In fact, one of the things that is such a peril for our growth is you can actually do Christian things so that you don't have to come face-to-face with Christ. I don't have to do the vulnerable thing of actually opening myself up and going before God because I've been so busy with reading my Bible and praying and going to Bible study and talking to people about God, but I'm not talking to God. The way the the Bible describes this in this passage is this obscure story from the Old Testament that Paul is referencing in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, we have a hope in the living God, and we are very bold. And the boldness that he's talking about is the bold access we have to God himself. We are very bold to go before God and be transformed. We're, We're not like Moses, who had put a veil over his face. So that the Israelites might not gaze on the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is the veil taken away. Okay, This is not a story that most people are familiar with. This is not one that you hear at VBS. This is not a big high point of the Bible story. This is a reference to when Moses takes the people to Mount Sinai, and he's getting the law, and when he comes down from the mountain after being in the presence of God for 40 days, his face is glowing with a brightness that the people can't stand to look at. And so, as an accommodation to them, Moses puts a veil over his face so that when he's talking to them, they can actually pay attention and look at him while he's talking. And the more that he spends the time down at the bottom of the mountain away from God, the less he's glowing and the more they can look at him. But then, when he goes back up to the mountain and talks to God, he's glowing again and he has to put the veil over his face. And this is a picture of what it means to be in the presence of God. That when we go into the presence of God, we too, like Moses are illuminated by him. We're glowing. It says in the New Testament, we shine like lights in the world of darkness because we have seen the light. The light is shining in us. But what happened is they actually, Paul changes the metaphor a little bit here, it's not just that the veil is over Moses' face. 
It's that they have a veil over their faces as well. It's like Moses' veil is physical, blocking the shining glory of God, but they have a spiritual veil over their faces, blocking them from seeing the glory of God. You know, in the Old Testament, one of the things that's being contrasted in this passage is the old way of connecting with God and the new way of connecting with God. See, in the old way of connecting with God, no one could see God and live. Over and over and over again in the Old Testament, people will ask, Moses asks, and Elijah asks, if I could just see you. And God says, as much as I would like to give that to you, I can't let you see me or you will die. Beholding the face of God is too much for a human. Anyone who sees God would immediately die. And so Moses only sees a reflection of God. He only sees the outer glory of God, and that's enough to make his face shine. And in fact, in the temple system later, they would have one person, the high priest, who would go into the temple, and they would offer sacrifices, and they would make sure that they were clean, and they would get ready to go into what was known as the most holy place, the holy of holies, to see the one who is holy, 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 separate from them. And on the Day of Atonement, the high priest, after preparing himself, would go through the veil in the temple, and he would go before the Ark of the Covenant and be before God. This was such a dangerous undertaking that they would attach bells to the priest's robes to make sure that he was still moving. And they would tie a rope around his foot just in case he did something wrong or he saw God and died and they had to drag him out of the Holy of Holies. I mean, this was a dangerous thing to encounter the living God. And throughout history, this is how God mediated his relationship with his people. Moses would go on the mountain and he would receive from God and he would come down and he would tell the people what God said. And then Jesus comes into the temple one day. And he's talking to the people, and they're marveling at how wonderful the temple is. And Jesus says, three days, this will be torn down, I'll raise it up again. And people are so dumbfounded by what, what he means by that. They're like, this took decades to build. What do you mean it's going to be torn down and you're going to raise it up again in three days? And then Jesus is transfigured on a mountain in front of his disciples, and they get a little glimpse of what he might look like in his resurrected form. And then he dies, and something happens in the temple. Do you remember this? The veil is torn. The veil in the temple from all the way high up in the temple, blocking out God's presence, is torn, and God is now out among his people. See, what Jesus was talking about is God doesn't live in temples anymore. He lives through the person of Jesus Christ, the risen Christ, who we now can see and know and talk to and commune with, is the fullness of God made available to us. See, we take it so lightly. We're, man, wouldn't it be cool to be in the Old Testament when there were just more tangible ways to know that you've encountered the living God? There's like incense and stuff, and temple worship and the physical trappings of the presence of God. But the thing that we miss is the Old Testament is a mediated experience of God. The Old Testament is a veil that lies over the faces 
of God's people. But what Paul says is, but now we have unveiled faces. Do you know that when you read your Bible, when you pray, when you just open your lips and say, oh Lord, you're experiencing a closeness with God that these people could not have dreamed of. God has made himself available to us in his son at a level that we now, he says, it's almost like we now have the veil taken away because we can behold the glory of God through the face of Jesus Christ. Some of us need, for the first time, to stop just being around God, to stop having a veil over our faces and actually encounter God for the first time. Actually make this year the year that we are transformed by God. That we too, like Paul writes here, we experience the freedom of the Spirit of the Lord. We, with an unveiled face, behold the glory of the Lord. We, like them, are transformed into the same image. This is the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another. You know, one thing that doesn't change year after year after year after year is the confirmation of those who are in Christ. There's the most certain thing in the world is how to be right with a holy God. There's only one way, to come before him, to bow down like we talked about last week with the Magi, to get on our knees and worship him, to confess that you have sinned and you have rebelled against the God of the universe and you want to be forgiven through his son's blood. And if you do that, you have unmediated access to God forever and ever through his spirit. So for some of us this year, the vision is that we wouldn't just be around Christian people. We wouldn't just be around what God is doing. We would actually experience what God is doing. You know, I think for, for our church, the first of the year is always a great time for vision for the year. But actually, it's, it's just a continuation of what we've been doing. And we don't want to be a church that just gathers together. We want to be a church that grows together. When we did a a series on the church this last year, we talked about the passage in Acts chapter 2, where they're doing all this stuff. They're gathering, they're giving away their possessions, they're breaking bread, they're praying. But the sense that really captured me is, and they were in awe of God together. They were in awe of what God was doing in their midst. How can you be in awe of what God is doing in your midst when you're not being transformed together? You can't. You can just go through the motions, and there's no awe. (laughs) We don't want to be a church that loses its awe. We want to be in awe of what God is doing among us. And so we need to trade any opportunity to step one step away from God and just be a part of what God is doing. We need to step in and make the trade-off of the hard work of having God transform us this year. Now, the second thing is we need to trade a vision of an easy life for a vision of a flourishing life. Trade the vision of the easy life and take on the biblical vision of a flourishing life. One of the things that Paul lays out in this passage is your end goal, my end goal, is not to be happy, to be healthy, to have an easy life, to be comfortable. None of that is the goal. The goal for your life is glory. The goal for your life is glory, the glory of God made available to you, made transparent in you. When, when you look at this word here at the end of this passage in verse 18, 
we all with unveiled faces are beholding the glory of God. We've already talked about how radical it is to say that. But then he says, being transformed into the same image, this image of glory, from one degree to another. This is the word metamorphosis, right? So metamorphosis is a certain kind of change. It's, it's a change where you keep being you, but you're better. That's what metamorphosis means. It's you, but in an improved state. It's not like all of a sudden it was you and now it's someone else. It's like when you watch those before and after uh, on the commercials with these diets where you're like, that person has tattoos before and after. They don't. I'm, not, I'm not really thinking this is the same person here in this commercial. That's not metamorphosis. That's trading places. Metamorphosis is when you go from your qualities, the way God made you, but into the image of Christ. See, metamorphosis is only used four times in the New Testament. It's used twice in the transfiguration. When Jesus is transfigured, it says, or he, he is metamorphed, or however you would say that, into his glorious self. And then the two other times, Paul is referring back to that saying, be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can know what God's will is for you and do it. And here he says, so that you can be transformed by beholding the glory of God and becoming a glorious child of God. The Bible's vision for your life of glory is, is rooted in this word flourishing. When Adam and Eve are created in the garden, God doesn't just say, hey, I want you to live here and be happy. He says, I want you to fill the earth. I want you to cultivate it. I want you to guard it and keep it. I want you to take the glory of God that's here, and I want you to spread it to the very ends of the earth. And that's what their mission was, and that's why they failed, right? They made the trade-off of do what makes us happy here as opposed to do what makes God's glory magnified there. That was the trade-off of eating the apple. It wasn't just disobedience. It was the kind of disobedience that makes the trade-off between happiness, easy life, versus missional glorious life. And all the story of human history is will you live for yourself or will you live for the glory of God? Will you live an easy life or will you live a fulfilled life? Will you live a flourishing life? It's interesting, one of the things that is so unique about our church, and this comes with all kinds of different avenues for ministry and opportunities, but we have so many successful, talented, powerful people in our community. One of the things that lets me know is we have so many people here who realize you don't build a business by making the trade-off for what's easy. You trade that off for what is successful or what gives you an advantage or what your competitors are not doing. You do it, and therefore you can build a thriving business. You don't become a leader by doing what's easy. You become a leader by doing what you believe is the goal, what you believe is virtuous, what you believe is going to set you apart and what's right. We have a lot of people who know that building a family means you don't do what's easy You do what's in the long-term interest of your kids and grandkids and family members. So why would our spiritual lives be any different? It's almost like we all have this check, and all of my life I will trade what's easy for what is required or what is successful. But in my spiritual life, most of my prayers are, God, just make my life easy. Here's This is really, I, I say this because I've been thinking about this in my own life. 
How many of your prayers, if they, would, if they were answered, would basically mean that you didn't need God anymore? How many of our prayers, if we just said, God, if you could just heal this, make this right, get this difficulty out of the way, so that then I could go back to my regular life of not really needing you. God's not inclined to answer those prayers because our life is one of dependence from start to finish. Our prayer life has to reflect the trade-off of, God, give me what I need to glorify you the most. Give me the things that I need in my life to live a life that is flourishing, life that is filled with the fruit of the Spirit, not just a life that is comfy and enjoyable and easy. You know, we're going to be starting a series next week in the Gospel of Matthew that's going to run all the way up through Easter. And what we're going to be looking at in the Gospel of Matthew, what Matthew is just uniquely good at doing in his Gospel, is using characters and stories to talk about what it means to be a disciple. Matthew's Gospel is the disciples' Gospel, how to become a follower of of Christ. Think about the Great Commission at the end. He says, go into all the nations, all the world, and preach the gospel. Baptize, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. The reason that Matthew wants to include those very words at the end is because all of his gospel is a lead up on how to do that. We saw that a little bit in Advent with the story of Joseph. Joseph is an example of doing the hard, godly thing over the easy, worldly thing. It's much harder to stay with Mary and raise the Son of God than it is to put her away lawfully, save your reputation, and move on to some other life. It's something we see in the Magi. It's crazy that Gentiles come and they cross over thousands of miles and they bow down in this treasonous act to worship a king when they are members of another royal court. But it's the godly thing to do. It's what God has put in front of them. And so all throughout Matthew, he's showing us how to become disciples. And you know, the cornerstone of of Matthew is the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, it's one of the most famous passages in the Bible. And people love the Sermon on the Mount. This is so crazy as I've been researching this. So many secular people love the Sermon on the Mount. The ethics of Jesus, it's wonderful, it's amazing. And I'm like, have you ever tried it? (laughs) This, is not, this, this isn't just like sage wisdom. This is like, love your enemies. <laughs> I would rather not love my enemies. I, I would rather not have the bar of, you know, if you murder somebody, that's really the line. Do not cross that line. To, if you hate someone in your heart, you've as good as murdered them. I mean, th- I admire it, but I can't figure out why people that don't have the spirit like it. It's crazy countercultural stuff, and it starts with maybe what is the most countercultural teaching in the New Testament in the Beatitudes. The, the Beatitudes, <laughs> you see these on signs and you know, little household things. The Beatitudes are the most radical ethical teaching in the New Testament. Here's why. They say things like, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are those who are peacemakers. Blessed are all these things that are actually not blessed in the real world. But the key to the Beatitudes is the second half. Blessed are the poor in spirit, 
For, because, since, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Every single one of the Beatitudes takes something that would actually be totally undesirable if it weren't for the fact that God promises that in the midst of that, He will be with you. This is the ethic of the New Testament. It's good to be poor in spirit if you can become a child of God. In fact, it's, it's better to be someone who mourns but is comforted by God than to be someone who never mourns. Think about how radical that is. It's, it's better to be someone who is persecuted for the sake of righteousness and to enter the kingdom of heaven than to never undergo any persecution. This is crazy if it weren't for God's all-satisfying presence in our life. So God's vision for you, your prayers for what God is going to do, have to be centered on that ethic. See, because some people in here, actually, they're not going to have the choice of the trade-off between an easy life and a flourishing life this year. Easy life is not on the table. 2023 could be your most difficult year you've ever been through, and you could have nothing to do with it. It could just happen to you. But what's going to happen is if we were to tell the stories of 2023 in next January, we would talk to some of those people, and it wouldn't have just been the most difficult year of your life. It would be the most glorious year of your life. Because what God is going to do is he's going to take the suffering, he's going to take the trials, the disappointments, the unmet expectations, and he's going to fill them with himself. And what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount is, and that will be better than having never gone through that in the first place. Getting God at the end. That's what the whole book of Job is about. That's why Job is so long and tedious. Because at the end, Job gets God. That's the message. So for us, we, we got to trade the vision of an easy life for a flourishing life. It may not be an easy year for us, but by God's grace, it could be the most glorious year yet. It could be a year where we have been forced to spend so much time with God, depending so much on Him, that we have glowing faces reflecting the glory of God. Now, here's the last thing. We've got to trade transactions with God for a real connection with God. We've got to trade going through the motions trying to please God and get Him in our debt, trying to have these kind of one-way relationships with God for a real connected relationship with Him. And this is where we get very practical, right? And you've heard a thousand sermons where you get to the end and they're like, so the application is read your Bible, pray, go to a small group, do all those things. So I want to reframe a little bit of why we do that, okay? You don't do those things so that God looks down and they're like, I was going to give them a blessing, but they've only got two out of five weekday Bible reading plans checked off this week, so I'm not going to do that anymore. Or, you know, they haven't been praying much, and that's why their life hasn't been going very well, but if they would really give it seven days in a row, I'll, I'll bless them. The problem with viewing things that way is that God doesn't owe us anything. We can't earn God's favor. That's the whole concept of grace. God gives without any expectation of return. Nothing you do is impressive to God. He loves you before you ever did anything for him. And so we can't all of a sudden say, okay, at the beginning I was a sinner and God loved me and gave his son for me, but now it's a merit-based system. 
Now that I'm a Christian, it's be on your best behavior or God is out. No, it's grace from the beginning to the end. It's grace when you start. It's grace when you finish. And so the power of doing these things is not in making God do something. It's, 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 it's a metaphor that I heard one of my mentors use over and over with me. Doing these spiritual disciplines is not earning something from God. And in fact, it's not even affecting something from God. Like I said, you can read your Bible all day long and the veil could still be there. Doing these spiritual disciplines is like raising the sails on a boat to capture the winds of the grace of God. It's putting yourself in the position that when the Spirit is moving in your heart, when the wind is blowing in your life, you're ready to move. You're there. You're set up. You're ready to go. You have a soft heart. You have an open mind. You have a spiritual community. You have verses ready that you have memorized and meditated on so that you're ready to deploy them when you need to give a word to somebody who needs it. You, you are ready to say no to sin because your sails have been raised and you've prayed through your day and you've been before the living God and you're not tempted by things now because you spent time with him. It raises the sails in your life for when the wind of God's grace is going to blow. It's like doing these things prepares you for what every day is going to hold. It's like God is packing a little lunch for you that you're going to need, that spiritual sustenance that you're going to need. God has given to you while you've done these things. There's some research floating around. I've seen this in several places, and you may have seen it too, called the power of four. And it's really a confirmation of what we're talking about. It's a huge research project that was done on people. And it, and it basically focused not on certain disciplines. It focused on how many times a week would you say that you have really connected with God? That you have really gone before him, you've opened yourself to him, you've beheld his glory, as Paul would say, you've spent time in his word. The power of four is the cutoff. People who spend four times a week connecting with God are 30% less likely to be lonely, 30% less likely to be angry, 40% less likely to have bitterness in their relationships, 228% more likely to share their faith, 400% more likely to memorize God's word, 416% more likely to give financially and of their time to the church. The power of four. And it's not as much about four as it is what you do regularly is who you will be before God. What you do, what, what trades you make between transactions with God, going through the motions with God, doing the easy thing, and being with God is what your life will become. And so one of our goals this year, and one of the reasons I introduced our elders and, and deacons before this is, what all of us are focused on among the many other things that it takes to shepherd and lead and serve a church is what are we doing between Sundays to connect with God? One hour a week is not going to do it. One sermon a week is not going to do it. One worship set together and a hello and goodbye between services is not going to do it. What are we doing between Sundays to shepherd and serve and commune together? And of course, we have a unique setting, right? We are, we're a team church with so many other churches that you all are in many Sundays. And we, we love that role. But what can we do to disciple people? Well, we want to get everybody in 
the Word. And whether you're in a Bible study with us, whether you're in the men's Bible study or women's Bible study or you're in our midweek Bible study together, we are in the Word. Our Bible studies are focused on Scripture. Um, we have Bible reading plans on our website that you can go to. We're working on something right now, version, the Bible app, which is like hundreds of millions of people around the world use this. It's, it's the most powerful Bible tool ever. They have just rolled out a church platform where now it's still pretty primitive, but now churches can really do a lot with the people that are on the app during the week. So, for example, now what you can do is you can go and you can search our church and select our church as your home church and see what plan we're putting out for the church right now. And you can sign up with people. You can message people. We can do that in small groups. We want to do, we don't care who gets the credit for it. We just want to make sure that everybody has something biblically to tie into. We want to worship together. We want to do life on life together. We want to pray together. But before any of that, we as a group of people want to encounter God together. But it's going to require trade-offs. So as we close this morning and as, as Mars comes and leads us in another song, my prayer is that this would be a continuation of transformation this year. That come March and April, it wouldn't be a falling off the wagon moment for our church. It would be one long road of following God from one degree of glory to the next. But it's going to require each of us to say, what trade-off is God calling you to make this year? What do you need to trade to encounter the living God, to behold his glory, to live with a shining face from being in his presence this year? As, as we sing, let God convict you of that. Let him bring things to your heart. Share it with somebody. Pray about it and do it. Make the trade-off. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we don't have to settle for looking at you through a veil. We get to behold you in your son, Jesus. Father, through your spirit and through each other, we get to encounter your work in this world. And Father, would you impress upon our hearts this morning some of the difficult decisions and trade-offs you're calling us to make, but the hope of glory that comes by encountering and following you. Father, make us a church of transformation, of glory, of awe in what you're doing. Father, use the things that we do, our spiritual disciplines and our time in your word and our prayers, not just to get around or to fill space, but to connect with you. And meet us, Lord, in those times. We just want you. And it's in your son Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Church, let's stand for one more while we worship. Moment.